you'll find it in the that difficult section that has a lot of profits in it. You just flip to the middle and there it will be. It's a short book, only about uh, 12 chapters. And so you'll be able to follow along. We'll be in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 this morning, continuing our narrative lectionary series as we move through the whole Bible uh, together this year. So we're in the prophets section right now. Hear these words from the book of Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my child. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. And yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. And I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities, it consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me to the most high they call, but God does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the word of God for the people of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, we give you thanks for this prophet Hosea, for his story, for his words, for the way in which he embodies your love for us. This morning, as we explore his story and his prophecy, we ask you to open our hearts and our spirits to your love. May the meditations of my heart and all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it is good to be amongst you again. I feel like I've been gone for weeks, even though I only was gone last Sunday. I was sitting, actually feeling a little nervous about this sermon this morning, and I don't know why. It feels like maybe I haven't preached in months, but... I did miss you while I was gone last week in Mexico City, and while I did enjoy a regular infusion of street tacos and uh, nightly dancing, salsa dancing, it wasn't a touristing trip. Myself and nearly 70 other theologians, activists, and thinkers from South Central and Western North America gathered for a purpose in Mexico City and two hours south in a town called Tequila. It was Dia de los Muertos, right? Day of the Dead, a celebration and honoring of those who have gone before us into death, those who we loved and knew and on whose shoulders we stand. The ofrendas were everywhere, these tables and stalls of family photos and bright paper mache, skulls, paper flags, fruit offerings, and what's called copal, this incense that's used across the country during this time for celebrations and ceremonies. And it was a part of the landscape that week 
appropriate to our purpose because our purpose was to gather to complete work we've been doing throughout the summer and fall, all of us in smaller groups, centering on this question of whether we can hold hope or will slide into despair in this tension between life and death that we are all in. And so we gathered in Mexico City during the holy time of Dia de los Muertos and traveled to a small town a few hours away in Morelos. Morelos is just one of the Mexican states where 37,000 Mexican citizens have gone missing. They've been kidnapped, they've been disappeared since the drug war was declared in 2006 by their president. And this number is all the more disturbing in the face of another number, 26,000. That's how many unidentified human bodies there are in the country. Some of the disappeared may still be alive somewhere, but many remain hidden, unclaimed, and unknown in clandestine graves created by the government and hidden throughout the country, including in the town nearby where we were staying, Hohutla. Why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you about these disappeared sons and daughters, husbands, students this morning? Because we met their mothers and sisters in the midst of this week and this work, and it taught me about the God of Hosea. The Hosea text is only one small section of a larger story and book. Of course, this is just part of one chapter. And Many people primarily know Hosea, if you know him at all, as a minor prophet who was destined to marry a woman named Gomer. And this woman, Gomer, would break his heart over and over through infidelity. Their children were stuck with names like Not Pity and Not My People. An agonizing family matrix to be stuck in, to be sure. And, of course, it's not just family systems or, that our scriptures are concerned with. It's the very lives of our prophets. Over and over again, as we read the stories from our prophets, each one of them, to their own degree, are used by God as a living metaphor. A metaphor for God's relationship to Israel. And Hosea, poor Hosea is asked to embody God's never-ending love for those people, even in the face of the greatest kind of hurt. Hosea's task is to stay loyal and loving no matter what happens to him, so that the people will see God's heart in his heart. From this agonizing family situation, Hosea teaches us that Yahweh feels about Israel just as Hosea feels about Gomer. Namely, while rejected and abandoned and humiliated, still faithful. Our reading is from chapter 11. It's long after the hurt has gone and been done. Gomer has gone to the arms of other men over and over again, just as Israel has turned relentlessly to other gods and trusted the protection of powerful nations like Assyria rather than Yahweh. The first movement, Hosea 11, 1 through 4, that first section I read, opens with this touching phrase, when Israel was a child. It remembers the first touch of love when there was connection and hope and the delivering God of the Exodus was holding the people in the desert while they wandered 
Like a loving parent protects a toddler from the world's dangers. You remember that story of them in the desert with the pillar of light, the pillar of fire, and all of the ways in which God cared for the people through the manna and the quails. A loving parent protecting children. And verses 3 through 4 offer testimony to God's loving care for that child through teaching and comforting and healing and nourishing. The divine parent raises this son, teaches him to walk, holds him in times of distress, and heals the child when he's hurt. And yet Israel's response to this devotion is rebellion. Like a sullen and rebellious teenager, the people turn away from God, ultimately choosing subjugation to Assyria instead of the loving embrace of God. And we see this in chapter 5. It's like we're following the lifespan of Israel through God's eyes. In place of Egypt, Assyria will now be Israel's taskmaster and will bring a whirling, dancing sword to the city, a sword that will devour its false priests and its people. And in the midst of this punishment, the people may once again call on the God of Israel, but Yahweh struggles to hear them. If we were to stop reading at this point in Hosea, it seems that God has in fact abandoned the people entirely, has abandoned God's child. This is why we always read to the end, friends. Why we always read the context, because we must keep reading. God's threatened response of abandonment and violent reprisal seems harsh. If you read verses 5 through 7 again, you will hear the anger, the deep hurt, the pathos that God has in God's heart. Who among you, who has been in a parenting relationship, has not lost your mind with anger or fear and said, fine, fine, my child. Do it your way, but don't come crying back to me when it all goes to hell. I I see some familiar nodding in that. God is parenting a teenaged Israel. This teenage son bursting beyond vulnerability has refused the attentions of his parents. He's done so by seeking military alliances and more disastrously with Egypt, the very source of their initial slavery. Can you imagine God watching the people go back to a relationship that had been abusive and horrible, out of which God had had to liberate them originally to return to that? Hosea alludes to the 8th century BC policies of northern Israel when the government in Samaria entered into alliances that in Hosea's view violated the entire covenant with Yahweh. As a result, Israelite society is devoured by militarism. It's collapsed underneath the weight of this warring culture. And that disastrous policy leads to the verdict of verse 7, my people, that is my firstborn child, my people are resolved to reject me. And thus the conclusion echoes the initial judgment of verse 2. The son rejects the life-giving relationship with his parent. Israel is abandoned to its own self-destruction, the kind in which any teenage child may find himself when a father acts with tough love and even wrath. Within the world of the metaphor of God as parent in Hosea, which I think daringly explores the possibility of divine emotion 
And even God's pain. This wrath is born of the deep pain of a rejected parent who can just watch helplessly, just helplessly, as their child makes poor choices that will ultimately do nothing but harm. But then, as I say, we have to keep reading. God turns inward and begins to speak anew. It's like God is recalibrating. The move from oracle, verses 1 through 7, to soliloquy, that fancy word that means talking to yourself, (laughs) verses 8 through 11, it's as though the Father, this image of God as parent in the middle of a rant against their child, says, wait a second, I need to catch myself here. What are you doing? What am I saying? It's as though this parent comes to himself as the the son came to himself in the story of the prodigal son in Luke. Asking, who am I? This this isn't me, what I'm I'm saying to my child. And this isn't my relationship to Israel. I, I will turn back and away from this anger. I will remain faithful to them even as they are not faithful to me. Following God's decision to forgive Israel in verses 8 through 9, despite the pain of rejection, God admits feeling internal turmoil at the thought of disowning the people. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This isn't an aloof, detached deity, you see. This isn't a God that is going to separate from the people and feels separate from them. This rather involves emotional risk. It's mutual, it's face to face, it's heart to heart, and it is not easy to break those bonds. The choice to love is the choice to open oneself to pain. Can we imagine God doing that? Despite the very real dangers of Hosea's family imagery for God, and it is dangerous, To imagine a God the way that Hosea does, there are lots of problems with this image. You can hear it even in my language. Do I call God father? Do I call God mother? Do I use the word parent? Whose pronouns do I use here? We all struggle with that. Despite those dangers, this image of God as parent is a powerful tool for expressing this shocking divine vulnerability. God is vulnerable by having this relationship with Israel. It's as though God is exposing the divine heart to hurt on purpose and saying, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, I am the God of this people. No matter what you do to me, I am the God of a love that will not let you go. And then the imagery takes this unexpected turn into the animal world. I love all of the images in Hosea, the God as dew and the people as animals and um, this mothering imagery. If you read the whole book, you can list out like dozens of different images for God and the people Israel. And it's beautiful to see all these metaphors at work and they're all complicated and they all hold their own problems. And yet they're all a gift. And while this story and these verses still talk about God as parent, at one point God becomes a lion. A lion who summons its errant cubs by roaring for them. That's in verse 10. God turns from nostalgia to frustration to loving commitment and finally to this beautiful 
furious devotion, this lion-like imagery that will not release God from the promises made to the people earlier in that relationship. The book of Hosea contains this remarkable variety of metaphors Like Aslan in C.S. Lewis's Narnia novels, God, the parent lion in Hosea 11, is both merciful and compassionate and also fearsome and dangerous on behalf of the people. And here's where we return to Mexico. Having done all of that looking at this particular set of verses, this week I... I told you that I met the mothers and sisters of the disappeared there, but I didn't tell you who I really saw, which was God. These mothers, there were about 15 of them, sisters and mothers, and they stood in front of us in our dining hall after we watched a documentary that was made for them and about them, and they stood with us and they prayed with us, these women of faith, not all Christian, but all people of faith, some of whom who have been searching for their children for 13 years. And they still hope to find them. They still hold that hope. And they state with strength and clarity to the Mexican military and the government, you took them alive and we want them back. Knowing the chance of that is nearly nothing, but living in hope nonetheless. Some of whom have found the bodies of their children and their husbands and their brothers in these clandestine graves, pits that they've located and found themselves and forced the government to recognize and then to excavate so that they could identify their children. And when they were not their children, to identify those children on behalf of others who have seen them dead and identified them in person in those mass graves, in their own towns, in their own towns, but who still stay in the search even when they have found their own children in those graves. They remain and do this difficult and dirty and dangerous work because their new sisters and friends have not yet found their own children. And so how dare they leave? How dare they leave them behind? Some of whom have bodies that are deteriorating from the stress and the strain of this effort not to give up on love. How hard it is on your body, on your heart, on your spirit, on your mind to not give up in the midst of what could be true despair. But who rest a bit and return to search throughout their country for their children who they say cry out to them from the ground, asking to be rescued, like Cain's blood from the ground outside of Eden cries out to God, who speak of their children gone years and years, but speak of them in the present tense, not out of ignorance, but out of hope. These women who chant together, Mio escucha, Tu madre está en lucha. My son, listen, your mother is in the fight. Calling this out, they they stood in front of us and led this chant 
Mío escucha, tu madre está en lucha. Mío escucha, tu madre está en lucha. Over and over again, and it felt as though God, like God's self was standing in front of us, calling out, calling out over and over again for us to join what was an incredibly powerful movement. Calling this out so that their buried children and the unburied children would not disappear, either physically or in memory. That these children, dead and alive, will know, will know that there are lion mothers in the world who will never stop looking for them, who will never stop loving them, who will never lose hope that they will be found. I sat and I listened to their stories last week. And I held them in my heart and grieved because, you know, I have read about God's love. Sort of a job hazard. I've read about God's love for my whole Christian journey. And I got it here in my head. God is love. We all know that. It makes sense. It fits the stories that we know. fits with our personal experience. I got it. But I never really understood it as something that human beings could incarnate. Not really. Because I hadn't personally seen it. My own mother didn't search for me when I was lost. And I actually sat in front of them and dissociated a little bit while they were in front of me. I didn't come to this understanding easily because first I had to deal with the fact that my own mother would not have done what they did. And that made me angry. And then I sat and I realized, well, you know what? God does that for me. I can be angry at my own parents, but I have evidence in the world that we can behave this way toward one another. That we can, in fact, live like this. These women showed me that that is not only possible, but incredibly powerful way to be in the world. I didn't really, until this week, have something earthy and real to work with there. But here's this metaphor for God, this mother, this lion, this ever-loving one, the, the one of the Psalms who is responding to our cries, the cries we cry from the darkest places, you know, So many psalms. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And who is the answer? Nowhere. Absolutely nowhere, child. To our question, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, there you are. I read Psalm 139 over and over. Where can I go from your presence? And the answer over and over again with these mothers and sisters in front of me was nowhere. You can literally be buried in the ground and I will find you. Yes, even in the clandestine grave of Sheol, this God seeks us. And I watched and I listened and yes, I did cry. I cried a lot this week. You can probably imagine 
I cried as I watched my image of God sort of crumble and get rebuilt. Definitely changed in Mexico with these mothers because metaphors are important, friends. What we call God is important. How we know God changes how we look at the world. Language matters because such language remains an important tool for imagining this God and the possibilities of this God. This God who ultimately transcends our limited and human comprehension. If I stay with only the picture of God that I have inherited or built on my own or constructed out of fear and lack and scarcity, if I stick with those images and metaphors, I will never understand the kind of God who is. Language matters. It calls to us to expand how we understand who God is. But who God is, is always really at its core a question of how God is. What God does. How God shows up in this world of ours. And in this life that we're leading. And that's life-changing enough to see God. And I'm grateful I got to do that this week. Even more so to see God in the flesh. In the flesh of these women. In Jesus the Christ incarnate. And in these mothers in Morelos. Because my image of God expanded. And changed and transformed in ways that I wasn't ready for. And that's where the pain lies, isn't it? When we're not ready and unprepared for what we think to change. But that's the question Hosea and these mothers beg me to answer. They beg me to continue to work on my own image of God and who God can possibly be who I have not yet imagined. How I can know God in new ways. Because knowing God is essential to growth. But if we do not then become transformed ourselves, we are still playing intellectual games with religion. We're not actually embodying the faith that we have been invited to become and to act out. We're not yet mature in the faith if we do not change. Once we feel that lion-strong, mother-deep call of God, child, listen, your mother is in the fight. I will not leave you or forsake you wherever you go, whether to heaven or to hell, I will be there with you. We must find a way to respond with that answer, that chance answer, with the corresponding promise, with the incarnation of that love in our own body. If we only receive it and we do not return it, We are not yet there. If we are not part of the body of Christ changing the world in the same way, if we do not become that lion, if we do not become that mother, if we do not become that image of God in the world, we have not completed our work. Mama, escucha, tu guía también está en lucha. Mother, mother God, listen. Your daughter is in the fight, too. So here's my question for you this morning. 
as we go out into this world, as we stand literally in a space which until 7 a.m. had 50 people sleeping on the floor because it is too damn cold outside right now. Where we have to house people because our city's policies are not strong and good enough to make sure that every single one of us has a house or place to live or family to care for us or resources to feed and clothe us and shelter us. When we stand in this space and we hear, your mother is in the fight, and we respond, I too am in the fight. I wonder what it would mean to know all of that and be clearly, just in your heart, your spirit, in your gut, not just in your brain, to know that that is the image of God in which we were made. What would it mean to be made in the image of this God? What would it require of us, of you, of each of us, of me, to imitate this kind of God? The kind of God that showed up in those mothers, in your own life. What would it mean? What would need to change? What would you need to do now? Not tomorrow, but now. In order to truly inhabit that kind of God image. Sons and daughters, listen, your mother is in the fight. And we will never let you go. Whether you go to heaven or to hell, we are there with you. So this is my prayer for you this week. That you will find a way to answer that question. That you will find a way to change and be changed in such a way that when somebody looks at you and says, I need you in this fight. That you will say, I will do anything. I will love you as hard as I possibly can, no matter what happens to you, no matter where you go, no matter what life throws at you, no matter how far away you're sent from me. I will fight for you. And I will love you. So may you, never, may you find the never-ending, deep, and wide love of God in your life this week and always. May you listen carefully. May your heart be changed. May you do differently than you did before. And when you hear the call, when you hear the chant, may you respond, transformed, beloved. Let us pray. O God, who leads us from death to life with people of all times and all places, visible and invisible, buried and alive. We give ourselves to you, for you alone are holy. And you draw us into holiness day by day, moment by moment, and breath by breath. This morning, we breathe out to you this promise that we will fulfill what you have called us to do. And we will be what you have called us to be. No matter how challenging, no matter how difficult, no matter how much it asks of us, because we are yours, and you have not run from, the, from us, and you will not let us be lost. And we breathe in your promise that you will be with us, that you will never let us go, that you, in fact, are alongside us in the spirit of Jesus every moment, every breath. We give you thanks and praise this morning for that gift and for that challenge. 
And we say, as we always do, not always knowing what it means, so be it. Amen. Amen. Friends, it is time for us to pass the peace together. I wonder if you are willing to rise, if you're able, and to say, peace of God be with you. Knowing that each one of us has in us a lot of things we're carrying. So to look in each other's eyes and to truly offer peace. Peace in this world that needs it so badly. Where we practice it here first and take it out. So to say the peace of God be with you and you respond with. And also with you, Andy and I will call you back. In song when you hear spirit of the living God, please return to this space and we'll continue in worship together. Peace of God.